Hello, my name is Andy Hazel, and thank you very much for joining me on this special episode of Twin Peaks The Return, a season three podcast. This episode is special for one reason, and that's because I've had the chance to talk to one of the mainstays of Twin Peaks, one of David Lynch's most trusted colleagues and a woman who has been there since the very earliest days of production on Blue Velvet, casting director and producer Joanna Ray. Joanna herself has a fascinating story, some of which she shares during the interview, but I thought I'd begin this podcast sharing just a few facts about her life before she became one of Hollywood's best-known casting directors. Joanna was born and raised in London, and in 1960 she met the American actor Aldo Ray on the set of the film The Day They Robbed the Bank of England, which Ray was starring in alongside Peter O'Toole. Aged 20, she moved with him to Los Angeles, where they married within months. Aldo Ray had already starred in some classic films including The Marrying Kind, Battle Cry, Where No Angels alongside Humphrey Bogart and Peter Ustinov, and an adaptation of Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead. After marrying Joanna, he'd go on to star in Dead Heat on a Merry-Go-Round with James Coburn and The Green Berets with John Wayne. Before their divorce in 1967, Joanna gave birth to three children, including Eric DeRay, who will of course be known to you all as Leo Johnson. I was put in touch with Joanna by the actor Reese Mitchell, who might not be a name many of you know, but there's a very good chance you will have seen his work about a year from now, because Reese is starring in a film called The Happy Worker, executive producer David Lynch. The Happy Worker also stars Thomas Hayden Church, Josh Whitehouse, Colmini, and some names you might know, Amy Shields and J.R. Starr, who are both in season three of Twin Peaks. The Happy Worker is directed by Dwayne Dunham, who was the editor for all of season three's episodes and the director of season one, episode two, and episodes 11 and 18 of season two. You'll be hearing more about The Happy Worker in future episodes of the podcast. But now to my interview with the woman who cast that film and Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, as well as Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards and Kill Bills 1 and 2, Ang Lee's Snowpiercer, Showgirls, Conan the Barbarian, and a whole host of other films, some of which get a mention here. But as you can imagine, I was mainly focused on her work with David Lynch, and I was very curious to know how someone becomes a casting director, especially someone with such an interesting background as Joanna Ray. I knew that it was what I always wanted to do, but when I was told that you had to get it going on the ground level and the hours were long and the pay was bad... And I realized I couldn't do it because I was a single mother with two kids. So I gave up the idea and sort of went into development, reading scripts and stuff like that. And at the company I was working at as a story editor, they used to have show the dailies on all the movies that they were producing. And just out of interest, I used to go you know, watch all the dailies because I was always interested in actors. And also I was married to an actor. I just knew it was my field because by sitting home alone all the time (laughs) when I was married, um, watching TV, I always seemed to pick the actors that uh, I liked that eventually became stars. So to cut the story shorter... A friend of mine who I'd helped get jobs in the business had got into casting and the producer that when she finished the one job, he told her he wanted her for the next one and kept her hanging for over a year 
till she finally had to take another job. So he called her and said, okay, you can start. And she said, but I've got another job. So he screamed at her and said, well, what am I going to do? And she said, well, I have a girlfriend I can recommend who knows actors and knows the business really well. So he hired me just on that. And, you know, it was common sense to me. You know, people would say, you know, how did you learn? And there's nothing to learn and nothing to teach as far as I'm concerned. You have to have a natural interest in it and be able to, um, you know, spot talent. Right. So is there some kind of special skill or intuition that you to be able to read the director and the project and the actor? I think so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I do believe that. So in the case of auditioning an actor for a role, is it a case of you and the director and the actor being in a room together and going through scenes? Not all the time, but some of the time. I mean, in fact, that's how David Lynch picks his actors. You know, he doesn't have them audition. He just listens to them talk and he studies them and makes his decision based on what he picks up from their energy. So how do you manage to get so much information, um, so much important information out of somebody in such a short space of time? There's so many. It's like it all depends on who's in the room with you. Um, with David, it's all very relaxed and friendly and and he might just take an interest in what the actor's interests are and it's all very nice and relaxed. And with other people... Um, <laughs> it can be a nightmare. <laughs> and I've heard, the strange thing is, and I don't understand it, and especially because I really don't know many other casting directors, but I hear some are really mean to actors and really rude, and I, I just do not understand that because if an actor does well, that makes makes us look good. So you want the actors to do well, so you have you encourage them and you you know focus on them. So I don't understand how anyone in my job can be impatient and rude with actors, but I hear it all the time. Right. So there are stories that are pretty well known stories of David Lynch just sitting and chatting to actors and them leaving that conversation with no idea whether they've got a role or not. And it's you who obviously gets them in the room with him in the first place. So how do you go about deciding who's actually worth getting in? And has it always been the same sort of process since you started working with David? Okay. The first time I worked with him, um, he liked to tell by headshots and get it, you know, I didn't know how he, how he worked, but then realized that I could only allow him to see headshots of actors who were good because he could pick someone and that person didn't look anything like the picture, for instance. So what I started doing was every actor, good actor that came in on other projects, I would take a photo of them and put them in a book and then show them to David how they looked, you know, in real life compared to a headshot that was taken 20 years ago. And so was that the process you used on a film like Mulholland Drive? Like on Mulholland Drive. Well, on all the movies, he said, okay, Joanna, we're ready to work. Bring your photo albums and we'll go through them. And that's how he found, you know, he picked Naomi Watts and Laura Herring and 
you know, everyone in Mulholland Drive. So that's very unusual. Okay, so I'm guessing a casting for season three of Twin Peaks must have been a very different process because you would have had over 200 roles to fill and an inordinate amount of secrecy around it. Can you talk a little bit about the casting process for that? Uh, yeah, what I did, what he wanted me, asked me to do was I couldn't send out the script. I couldn't wasn't allowed to talk about it because we everyone had to sign an NDA. So I only brought in actors that who I knew, or if you know if someone had sent a reel and I liked it. So he had me um, videotape the meeting of the actor and me talking back and forth, and so that when he was looking at it, he could feel like he was in the room also. And so that's how we did it. And I must have had a thousand actors, I think. Wow, right. Okay. So if you're calling an actor, is a phone call from Joanna Ray a phone call that is always answered? Um, yeah, but I go through the agents. Ah, okay, right. Yeah. Because a lot of it depend, depends on how well the agent knows you and how well the agent trusts your taste. I can go to one agent agency and I know all I get the playmates and and girls who go topless. And then another agency handles mostly theatre actors. Okay, because some of the casting for season three was done quite unconventionally from what I've heard. Is that right? Yes. (laughs) And in very strange ways too. Like for instance, the actor who played um, the deputy sheriff in Twin Peaks uh, Deputy Andy, that, um, Harry Goes. Yeah. Do you know that story? Um, I've only heard it secondhand, so I would like to hear it from you. You probably have. It's quite simple. He was just, uh, he was David's limo driver. Right. Drove him to the airport and David remembered him and said that's who he wanted for that role. And so Harry Goes was an actor with an agent? Uh, I don't think he had an agent, no, because he lived in Texas. Oh, okay. But, yeah. Because this does seem like an interesting way of casting. Um, even some of the actors that I've spoken to aren't entirely sure how they were cast in Twin Peaks. Um, Eamon Farron, who played Richard Horn, told me he thought that he was cast because he was in a film by Jennifer Lynch. Exactly. Um, Chained, I think it was called. Exactly, yeah. David told me about him. He'd seen him in, in Jen's film and said, I hope Jen doesn't mind if I steal him. And I said, of course she won't mind. <laughs> and and he was, he was real fine because I didn't know about him. Right. So um, in the case of The Happy Worker, which is produced by David Lynch but directed by Twin Peaks editor Dwayne Dunham, was that a particularly different process from the one you were used to with Lynch? Not for me, no. Um, it wasn't because the business has changed so much. It's all you know, on the computer. And I had given up my office because I was paying rent for two years and um, didn't need to go in. So basically it was all done on actors doing self-tapes and sending the self-tape in. And if it was good, then I would ask for, uh, you know, an example of their other work. And... um, that's how it was. 
Okay. So outside of the world of casting, you've also been a producer, like for the film Fire Walk With Me. Um, how did you make that step from casting director to producer? Um, just because I was responsible for the cast. Yeah. And oftentimes, not, not so with David, but so much of our job ends up producing because oftentimes the producer has never produced before or the director's never directed before and we're teaching them how to do it. So in this sort of situation, you would be the most experienced person in the crew or um, involved in the production? I mean, with David, obviously that wasn't wasn't the case, but um, it often is. Right. Um, that transition seems like an unusual one. It's not one I've seen very often happening for a lot of other people. Do you think that's specifically like a reward for you and the work you've done with David? Um, I don't know other, other people, <laughs> but before I got into casting, I had worked in other aspects of the business. I had worked at an agency and, and I'd worked in management and I'd worked as a story editor and I'd worked for a publicist and all the, in this business the more varied experience you have like for instance if I hadn't worked at an agency I never would have known you know being able to second guess what was what the agent's job was for instance you send a script to the agent for an actor and the producer's breathing down my neck and say have you heard back have you heard back I'd say this is not the only script the agent has to read. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> because they think that. They don't, you know, they don't know. They don't think of the pile of other scripts, you know, that agents have to read. And then then they send it to the manager before they send it to the actor, you know, and there's a whole process of how it works that people aren't necessarily aware of. Okay, um, because I spoke to Jake Wardle who played Freddie Sykes and David found him through YouTube. Um, Is that right? Yeah. So that's a casting decision that David made himself. So hypothetically, if Jake had turned out to be not a good fit for Twin Peaks, could you have said something to that effect? Well. I guess that's a pretty tricky situation. Well, with Jake, I just knew David. I, I was just kind of really taken aback. I mean, I was shocked. Um, and very worried. <laughs> right. But I, I knew better than to say anything because David always, you know, his choice is always, you know, he's brilliant that way. And Jake turned out great. Yeah, right. He certainly made his mark. Do you, have you ever talked to David into or out of a casting decision? Um, I have talked him into an actor occasionally, but I've never talked him out of one that I can think of. In fact, I really would would talk anyone out of an actor unless I thought they were really bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and, and that's um, never happened? I mean, there's often the case when you know the actor's history, you know they're an ex-addict or an ex-alcoholic, or an alcoholic, and there's a danger of, you know, as... I feel torn because I don't want to, you know, bring that up and have the actor lose a a potential job. But on the other hand, I owe it to the producer and and to the director, you know, that I can't spring someone like that on them. 
But then with David, he seems to be attracted to um, ex-alcoholics and ex-drug addicts as long as he, he thinks, you know, it's ex. But he always seemed, he seems to have a genuine, you know, want to help kind of reward them and help them. Um, it does seem that Lynch and you seem to be able to find these late career actors and bring them back for a role that becomes fairly iconic and seems like a really good match between actor and role, um, which is a decision I thought was at least half of you. Oh, thank you. Uh, is that something you both set out to do, to look for these sorts of older actors? Yeah, there are only certain people you can do that with. You can do it with David, you can do it with Quentin. And then people say, oh, gosh, you know, forgot about him. But you do it with, a, you know, sort of a mediocre script and a not a well-known director, and then it's a has-been. So in the case of season three, with all this secrecy and these huge numbers of roles you had to fill, um, were you even allowed to look at the script? Uh, yes. <laughs> it was over 400 pages long. I had to go up to David's house to read it because it couldn't leave his house and I had to leave his house without it. So how do you cast for roles that you can't talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I did have access, you know, when I was looking for a specific role, I did go back up to the house to read the script, to try to find that role in the script to refresh my memory because there were so many roles and some that I'd completely forgotten. So it was very, it was very difficult. And especially as I couldn't even tell the agents what the role was when I called for an actor uh, because we had to sign this NDA. I always try to bring in the very best actors. As long as I know that they're really, really good, I know that they're good enough for a role that they might not be right for. Oh, right. Okay. So I do rely on that. (laughs) And then oftentimes, you know, in the past too, a role will be described as a specific way in the script and I will bring in a couple of people that are exactly that and then I'll bring in, you know, half a dozen other people who are maybe complete opposite were totally different, different ethnicity, uh, because oftentimes, you know, it's something that no one had thought of and they sparked to it. So the actors auditioning aren't allowed to ever see their scenes, right? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so how does it work? Well, they didn't audition and they didn't get the uh, the scene. They ne- No one read the script. They didn't get the scene until they worked and they just had to go on trust because it was David, which of course they didn't mind because they all want to work with David. That that was what helped make it a lot easier. Right. So in most cases, these roles were just one or two scenes. I mean, they were like barely even characters. It was tough because he would pick an actor like early on for a role that wasn't very big. And it was like, I thought, oh, the act is wasted in that role, you know. He should be playing a bigger role, but um, but then you never know what David's going to do with the role. Yeah, because often those roles will change on set, won't they? Oh, definitely, yeah. And he was 
when he went home from the set, he would be writing new scenes for the next day. So given your role in the production, did you actually enjoy watching the finished series or was it a bit frustrating? Um, in a lot of ways, yes. Yes. But then so many of the episodes were so different from each other that, you know, there was – it's hard to imagine. I can't really remember what my reaction was. I mean, I loved, I loved the fact that um, – do you know who Don Murray is, who plays? Yes, the actor yeah. from Bus Stop. I love the fact that he was used to, to the extent that he was. Oh, me too. He was wonderful. That was really great to see him in that yeah. role. Um, but were you also sitting at home saying, oh, God, I can't believe you only used Charlene Yee for one scene? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And I remember feeling the same way on, on Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me when David Bowie had so little to do I thought and then even more so when I saw 20 years later when I saw the outtakes yes yeah and there was a lot of him Phil yeah Yeah, it was a really striking role and such an important yeah were you responsible for bringing him in I didn't have to bring him in I just yeah suggested him um so you would have called him and convinced him to do it um, must have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was an inspired choice. But a lot of a- actors like that, you know, you don't bring in if they're stars. Yeah, but it was still a very different role from Good My- Goodbye Mr. Lawrence and The Man Who Fell to Earth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also suggested him to uh, Julian Schnabel for um, Basquiat. Oh, right, yeah. He was great in that. Nice work. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't difficult to imagine. No, no. Um, so given that you've worked on so many different films and you've had such a key role in so many of these films being successful, do you think there should be an Academy Award for casting directors? Because you're the only crew members mentioned in the opening titles without one. There should be a lot of things for casting directors. <laughs> I mean, they've just started giving Emmys. It definitely should be Academy Awards. And I was just talking to someone the other day that, um, you know, because all the actors get residuals and some people falsely assume that casting directors get residuals too, but we don't. So an actor that we could cast, you know, for one day's work will be getting residuals for sev- several years. And we're in between jobs. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like a very insecure profession. Well, it's like an actor, basically, although actors don't, realize that they get surprised you know that we we have times when we're out of work too so is uh, your work on twin peaks the reason that you think you have gotten most of your work um no blue velvet was the reason right okay that, that's course. the one that you know got me going and is working with quentin tarantino a very different experience to david lynch uh yes but it was a really good experience and he he usually knows in his head who he wants for most of the roles when he's writing them. So there's not nearly as much to do with him. Right. So in the case of someone like Carl McLaughlin, you're not going to cast him, right? That's a conversation. Oh, that between... was before I knew David. Right, of course. That was Jim. Yeah. yeah. But he was discovered by a casting director who went up to saw him in, I think he was living in Washington State then. 
and she discovered him and did a great job. Oh, definitely. Uh, did you get to go up to Washington State to the lo- locations? Uh, yeah, I was, I was in Seattle to cast, you know, the do the lo- local casting. And in Blue Velvet, I went to North Carolina to pick, you know, those roles. Uh, you weren't responsible for finding Cheryl Lee, were you? No. <laughs> she was cast as an extra to be the body, the dead body, in the cold and naked, wrapped in plastic, because there weren't, you know, many offers <laughs> from, you know, girls who wanted to do that. And and basically that's all she was required to do. And, but then David, after filming, I think there was one scene that wasn't in the script where he had her when she was alive. And from that, he picked up on the fact that she, she was so talented and was such a good actress. So for The Happy Worker, even though you're working with some familiar faces, has technology changed the way that the casting process took place? Um, yeah. I mean, it was – working with Dwayne was wonderful. Um, I love him. For me, it was really stressful because I hadn't done it completely from off the computer you know, it's one thing when you get a bunch of headshots and you can go through them and then turn them over and look at the resume and you put them in a certain pile. Well, sometimes you don't get the credit till the end. <laughs> it completely, I mean, the, the the great thing about casting is that each job is really different depending on who it is that you've, you're working with. And it's never the same. You know, and it's never never dull or boring. <laughs> Did know much better than me, but it's still, it's, you know. So casting now doesn't even really involve meeting people face-to-face until quite late in the process. It, it takes all the fun out of it. it. It really, it takes, to be honest, it takes the reasons I wanted to be a casting director away. Yeah. I mean, if if you have the luxury of being able to, meet some of them face to face and actually, you know, go over the scenes with them, that would be nice. But what happens is when I first started casting, the agents would submit actors who they thought were right for the roles. And then I would pick who I thought was right and say, you know, and make an appointment for them to come in and audition. Now the actors can self-tape then it's not a matter of seeing who you wanted to see in the first place. It's having to look at pretty much everybody. So does part of your casting process now still involve going to theatrical productions and sourcing new talent? It's not that easy to cast from the theatre because oftentimes the actor isn't a member of SAG. Right, okay. I wish I could say I'd had more luck casting from theatre. And it's strange with theatre because you can go to a play and even on Broadway and an actor can be brilliant and then you never hear of them again. Okay, so it sounds like you've finished working on The Happy Worker. Uh, is there anything else you're working on at the moment you can tell us about? There is a project that I can't really talk about that I will also be producing, um, but it's 
such an early stage. There isn't even a script yet. So, <laughs> well, that sounds exciting. Yeah. Uh, in your case, does being a producer mean you have a bigger say in the actual production? Well, sometimes you don't get the credit till the end. <laughs> the great thing about casting is that each job is really different depending on who it is that you've, you're working with. And it's never the same, you know, and it's never, never dull or boring. <laughs> uh, so before you got into casting directing, did you have plans on being an actor? Uh, well, I did. I was years and years ago in England, but I wasn't very good. They were just you know, small roles. <laughs> So you moved to Los Angeles in the early 1960s, um, but then you were divorced in 1967. And so how come you've chosen to stay in Los Angeles since then? I came to LA because my my ex-husband, who was an actor, was making a movie in England, and that's how I met him. And so I came to um, this country to be with him, and we got married a month later. And had two two kids, so if I didn't hadn't had the children, I don't know what I would have done. Well, first of all, he the, one of the first things he said to me was, um, "If you want to continue working, then you can't marry me. <laughs> I have to make the choice between working and marrying him." He was a bit older than me and that was a long time ago and uh, uh, that's the way he was um, so when we got divorced I felt I had really had no choice because I couldn't split the kids up from their father you know couldn't go back to England and then you know break up the family unit even though we were divorced so that's why I stayed here and then I tried acting a bit and didn't didn't enjoy it like I had before and so got into uh, I think my first job was at a management company and I suppose growing up in England I'm not speaking generally but um but you're not really raised to be assertive about money or be pushy or that sort of thing so it would have been quite strange I imagine it's particularly as a single mother in the late 60s it, you're telling me it was complete culture shock growing up in England and working in England you don't ask for a raise <laughs> you know you're off, you're rewarded with a raise so I never knew to ask for a raise <laughs> Whatever, and lots of things like that yeah so have you actually ever worked in England as a casting director um not the only time I've worked in England was on a portrait of a lady to cast um, local characters. That was fun, but I've never had a job that originated in the UK. It's interesting to look at your CV and see a lot of the same names recur, uh, which is a really good sign, I suppose, that you've got a sort of a family or a group of people with whom you can work uh, well and have worked with well for a long time. Um, with regard to Twin Peaks Season 3, am I correct in thinking you're still under an NDA? <laughs> I think it expires in 10 years, which is ridiculous. Also, the uh, you probably know that the, uh, the penalty in the NDA is a million dollars. 
Right. Uh, I was not aware of that. Whereas who has a million dollars that we're likely to know? (laughs) Has anyone objected to that? No, nor an actor who came in, you know, because every single actor that came in had to sign an NDA and their agents and managers also just by me calling them in. (laughs) In fact, that just in itself was a lot of work. I'd forgotten about it. But just that in itself, dealing with the NDAs was a lot of work, which one normally doesn't have to do. Did anybody walk away when they were presented with this NDA right up front? No. There were a couple of actors that refused to come in. And I'm guessing you can't tell us who they are. Um, This whole arrangement is pretty unusual, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Very rare. So obviously it's a great thrill to work on remarkable films and productions and with really, really interesting people. But are you still enjoying being a casting director in 2018? Um, I love the idea of it. I just, I love what it was. And um, I still love the idea of it. And uh, it's just that you can tell with the phone thing. I'm not you know, savvy on the computer. And and people say, well, why don't you just hire someone who can do everything on the computer? And and I said, well, then they'd be doing my job. What would I be doing? <laughs> <laughs> so despite all these changes, you're still playing a pretty key role in some of the most fascinating um, and critically acclaimed films of recent years. And your next one, The Happy Worker, has a very strange synopsis. It's described on IMDb as a community has been happily digging a hole in the desert for 75 years until one digger finally asks why they're digging the hole and things <laughs> begin to change. An existential fairy tale. Yeah, it's, it's not like anything you've seen before. So the process of casting um, must have been an interesting one because you've got a British actor, Josh Whitehouse, who's best known for his role in a forthcoming movie called uh, Valley Girl, a remake of a teen classic, um, established actors Thomas Hayden Church and Colm McMeany, and the Australian actor Reese Mitchell, who's best known here for his role in a series called Upper Middle Bogan. So could you tell us a bit about that process? Uh, my process, yes. Um, oftentimes I'll meet actors just because they happen like for instance on the movie with Reese the actor who has the lead in that movie I wasn't working on anything but the agent called and said I have an actor in town that I'd like you to meet and know about so I met him and I liked him and then months later the agent invited me to a screening of the remake of Valley Girl, which he starred in. And he was great. He was terrific. And um, and at that screening, I mentioned that, you know, that something might be coming up because I knew of the happy worker, but it wasn't for sure. Um, and he was the only actor that Dwayne looked at for that role. Yeah, the minute he, he you know... And he was cast just off his um, reel. Okay. And in the case of Reese, have you actually seen the show Upper Middle Bogan? Because it's one of the least Lynchian things I think has ever been put to air. Um, that may have been on Reese's reel because it's not a show I'm, I'm familiar with. And actually, Reese originally sent a tape in for the lead role. And I looked at his work 
and was very impressed and thought he had a very special quality. And everybody fell in love with him. Uh, did you get to visit the set? Yeah, I got to see quite a bit of it about a month ago and it, it looked wonderful and the actors are great. It, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds amazing. So getting a job like this, um, I, is this directly as a result of having done casting for David? Right. Casting for David in a couple of situations um, hurt me a little bit because I'd be working on a job and they say, and they'd immediately associate me with weird taste, you know, dark. And one director actually said, I don't want you to bring any of the David Lynch type actors in. Wow, really? And they're not David Lynch type actors. They're actors that David, you know, <laughs> they're actors. People forget that. It seems like a really strange thing to say because you've worked on so many different films. I mean, there's a huge range in your back catalogue. Right, right. No, it's always interesting, and, and the more different different anything is, the better. Yeah, I mean, Showgirls was a trip. Yeah, it certainly was. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, there's a director who's doing a documentary on, on the movie Showgirls. I'm interviewing you about your role as casting director? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd definitely be looking forward to um to seeing that. Uh, well, Joanna, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and experiences about your work with David Lynch and on Twin Peaks Season 3. Well, it was nice meeting you and then talking with you, and I'm sorry it took so long. Oh, thank you very much, and I hope we can do this again sometime. All right. Take care. Bye for now. Bye. And that was my conversation with David Lynch's erstwhile casting director, Joanna Ray. Um, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Twin Peaks, a season three podcast. I'm not sure when I'll be back, but I imagine it will be sometime in the next couple of months, possibly with an interview with Reese Mitchell, who you heard mentioned there. We're on Facebook and Twitter at TP Season 3, if you'd like to follow and find out more. Music is by The Black 100. I'm Andy Hazel. Thanks again for listening.